Welcome to a very special 80s all over Halloween edition starring Scott Weinboo and my co-host Drew McSqueary. I, I, I would go with McScreamy, but um, uh, the scariest thing is that you think that's the scary voice? <laughs> it, coming from me, that's kind of scary, isn't it? It's, What's the scarier voice? I would definitely not, not let my kids take candy from your house. That That's the one scary thing about that voice. That is that is a way to start. What's up, Scott? Welcome to a very special 80s all over. There you go. There you go. Now you're doing the Barry White's all scared. The scary white voice. There we go. Brought to you by Casper Mattresses, although not really. No, definitely not brought to you by by anybody, frankly. No, no, no. Let me finish my bit. Oh. 80s all over, brought to you by our scary patrons. They are very scary. They're scary because they love us so much. Now, I'm I'm excited to do a very special uh, 80s all over Halloween episode because uh, uh, we are welcoming back one of the icons of 80s horror to the uh, the horror community this week. Uh, I just got in the mail my very special black plastic wrapped uh first issue of the new fangoria and uh boy it has me nostalgic man welcome back fangoria and we might add welcome back michael myers yeah yeah it's a it's an interesting moment it it definitely feels like uh 80s horror is not just horror but 80s horror is roaring back to life and i i think uh the success of it last year and, uh, you know, there is it feels like all the horror sites are run by people who really were formed during the 80s or by the horror from the 80s. And so as as much as our generation kind of looked back to the 30s and the, the 50s as the the real um, sort of signposts, I think the 80s have become the jumping on point for most young horror fans. Yeah, I think you're right, in a, because a lot of the stuff in the 80s was fairly simplistic and that's stuff for younger or early horror fans to like you can not halloween obviously which was also uh, 78 but you could get your training wheels on a fr- bunch of friday the 13th sequels and build up your confidence to maybe tackle the evil dead or reanimator uh you know and and so the uh the non-stop horror franchise thing was very prevalent in the 80s. Uh, obviously, we had, you know, sequels back in the golden age of Universal Monsters. They had plenty of sequels. But I would say that the marketing side of the franchise didn't really take over until the 80s. I mean, you had a horror, you had a Friday the 13th sequel virtually every se- every summer. Uh, you had a, a Halloween. How many Halloween sequels did we get this decade? One, two, three, four, five. Um and Hellraisers and whatnot, what have you. They, 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 it was really easy to just keep churning out part two, three, four, five, because also in a way what you're doing is recycling the popularity of the first film because you'd release Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and then you'd have a, a bunch of nerds exactly like me and my friends running to the v- store to rent Friday the 13th, one, two, and three for a horror night. And, you know, that stuff is still goes on today. Uh, although you don't have to run to the VHS store and drop $15 to rent three 
old horror movies. I think one of the things that changed and one of the reasons that I feel like horror became, we became much more possessive of horror horror in the eighties was before then you were really at the mercy of the horror hosts and what was available and what they could get the package rights to and what TV would show. And so like the horror stuff that I got raised on in the seventies was all things I saw on TV or things I probably shouldn't have seen theatrically, but did. Whereas in the eighties, I was testing my own limits and it was my friends and I, because of video would decide what we felt like we could handle or what we couldn't handle. And we made a lot of mistakes, but it was us. And the same thing with cable, like we decided we programmed and it wasn't just the one thing that was on the UHF channel on Saturday night. And that's the only horror available to you now. Yeah. But that's how I saw the terror party beach. Well, I, that's how I saw a lot of stuff like the early stuff I saw. I know Night of the Living Dead for me was a UHF Saturday night. I didn't know what it was called because I came in 15 minutes late. And it, it conquered the world is one that I remember very clearly. Uh, Drew, let's talk about this real quick. The idea of scarcity helping to create fans. For example, if you were one meet like me or Drew and it was a Saturday afternoon, you would have like two options. You would have like some 1956 monster movie or a 1972 martial arts movie. And that was your like two o'clock block. You could find you could watch either one of those. And that was it. And and then at four o'clock, if you were lucky, there'd be two other movie options. And being forced to choose between two movies that you probably wouldn't choose in a video store I don't know, kind of forces you to appreciate things that you might not have otherwise. Uh, I definitely felt like um, I had to work harder to see things and things felt more special. Like when they announced that the the UHF channel near my house in Texas was going to have a uh, Harryhausen week. That was a huge deal. And every single day I would be there to watch one of them in the afternoon. And that felt like, oh, my God, this is an event. Who knows when they'll ever do this again? A little sidebar, Drew, were you a fan? Uh, I know Joe Bob Briggs, the great Joe Bob Briggs, who we hope to have as a a guest uh, in the future, uh, did some hosting. But I was never a big fan of like the USA Network, like Up All Night or or Captain uh, Commander USA. And, And my only reasoning was I already am dealing with commercials from these networks. I also don't want 10 or 12 minutes of bumpers full of comedy. I just want to watch a movie. So I was never really a fan of the hosted stuff, although I certainly get why people did like that. Well, I because my first horror host when I was a kid was Dr. Paul Bearer in uh, Clearwater. And he was the Florida sort of I think it was Clearwater, Florida, Central uh, Florida and fairly well known for the region. And he was a guy who like I watched every weekend and I got used to the idea that I had to sit through silly goofy horror host to get to my horror movies that was almost part of the deal like i just thought that's how it worked you had to have a horror host and you know then sctv had count floyd and i realized that regionally everybody had their own and i whenever i would travel i would see other horror hosts so i kind of love that as a thing that existed um i think by the time cable and up all night and usa and that stuff hit I like the detritus, the stuff like the videos and the weird clips and the things like that way more than I like them showing a whole movie and interrupting it. Um, I either want to go the full Misty and have them become a part of the movie where to me, Misty's not about making fun of bad movies. It's about making a bad movie into something else where they actually interact with it and make it fun. Or I want 
like if I'm going to watch one of those event things on late night cable, I just want the whole hodgepodge. I want you to throw clips at me and bits and things that don't necessarily show me a movie. Like there's a lot of that stuff I really enjoyed because it introduced us to things like the incredible strange film show. And there were clips from things that then you would go and track down. And I do think it helped alert you to the fact that there was a lot of crazy stuff out there that you could find. Right, but Drew, what is a skeleton's favorite musical instrument? What is it? A trombone. Of course it is. Drew, what do witches ask for at hotels? What? Broom service. All right. Um, yeah, so we asked our friends up on the Twitter as a little uh, addition to this episode to throw us some mini reviews of films that they have uh, watched thanks to the show. So, uh, BLC Agnew says, Dead and Buried remains one of my favorite pieces of hidden treasure that I pointed out to over the past couple years. A fun twist on several horror conventions with a quality build by a dynamite third act. Keep up the great work. I think there's a lot of people that are going to bring up Dead and Buried because that's one that is not in the canon and probably should be at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for many years, I, I mean, I guess throughout the 90s, if, if somebody uh, had asked me not on the Internet because it didn't exist. Uh, hey, Scott, you know, name some offbeat horror films from the 1980s. Uh, you would say near dark or reanimator stuff that is fairly, you know, very well known now. But back then they were still on the on the up as far as cult or as far as popularity goes dead and buried we should have done a better job of pimping gary sherman's fantastic dead and buried was very uh happy to meet him last year in chicago and we talked briefly about a handful of his movies and i told him just how much i love his two horror movies this and raw meat well there's a lot of and there's a lot of horror filmmakers that will tell you that gary sherman is a big name for them because of those movies and they really like they they made a pretty deep impression on a lot of guys whose work people love and i think they'd be shocked that they don't know this movie that's so formative for so many of these guys let's move now since we are both horror fans and film critics let's briefly discuss the problem that our favorite film critics the late roger ebert and the late gene siskel they really did have a problem with horror films, didn't they? I mean, it's not, I'm not, I, I don't mean it as like a screw them, those rotten bastards, but I think they both had different but innate problems with the genre. And I say that with respect. What do you think? I think on rare occasion, uh, Roger would enjoy a horror film. I think um, Gene was, and this this is shocking to look back at, but Gene was a prude and just for violence. And it was really, it's really interesting. If you go back and you read Fangoria from the early 80s, they are public enemy number one. They hate Siskel and Ebert. They hate uh, Siskel in particular. And he was one of the early guys calling for a change in the rating system. He wanted explicit violence. He wanted movies like Friday the 13th be an X, no question. He just wanted an, an X, and he wanted an X for violence. He was like, we have an X for sex. Why don't we have an X for violence where you just put this porn? And you just, if somebody wants to watch this nonsense and you want to see this and you're a pervert, then great, you can go watch it. And it should be an X, and that should be the end of the conversation. Now, now did, did that perspective from reputable and entertaining film critics did that kind of create in people like you and me kind of like a chip on our shoulder where it was like i know friday the 13th final chapter is not meant to be a merchant ivory production but if you're just going to call it garbage and give it one star then i'm just going to be that much more interested in going to see it 
Well, I, I, my entire experience with horror in the eighties was that it was shameful that I should be ashamed for being a horror fan. And it was from very early on. My dad would throw away Fangoria magazine. If he found it in the house, we've covered this in another episode. You know what my, remember what my dad did to my Fangoria? Oh yeah. would leave him on your bed shredded and, and shredded into four. He would just shred it once, then twice into like four piles and drop it on my bed. And it, it, there was something about the notion that if we liked these things, something was wrong with us. Something was deeply messed up in us for liking something like this. I distinctly remember looking at like the fold out from like spasms and thinking I was always kind of smart, you know, in many ways. And I remember thinking, yeah, I can see why a parent would look at this and go, that's sick. Oh, yeah. And I tried to have that conversation over and over that I was fascinated by the makeup, by what was behind it, not by the image, but by what went into the making of the image. And that was the disconnect. And yeah, I like the genre. And I think one of the things that has become clear as we're talking about these is that you and I are not slavishly devoted to a genre where we just blindly everything that was in that genre was good and we across the board love everything and dude hospital massacre forever yeah and i think there's uh, but i do think that there is a sense that in some some of these things in, in for some genre fans it's all or nothing that you have to be a hundred percent on board and I find myself frequently rolling my eyes when we get to the fine dissection of the the arguments between which is better, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, and I'm like, I hate all of them. I hate all of those sequels after a certain point, and I really, I get that when you're a horror fanatic, the really hardcore, and you just want horror 365, you quickly have to learn to love the lumpy and the misshapen and the not quite good. And I the- bet you and I both had that period of our lives where we were into the Halloween sequels. I never thought they were as good as other franchises, but I went to see virtually every one. I was too young, I think, for three. But after from four on, I saw everyone in the theaters. And it to me, it was just part of the pantheon, not my favorite part of the uh, of the whole machine. But I was I was really I think you and I were very different. And and I very quickly became defensive of the things I loved and and upset by what I saw as cynical cashing in on them. I really I I don't know that I saw five or six all the way through in theaters. I would see bits and pieces because I worked while they were playing, but I resented and disliked them so much that I would rarely sit through one all the way through. Right. But what is a vampire's favorite fruit? A blood orange. Nice. No, I was going for nectarine, but I will accept Uh, blood orange. All right. Okay. Oh my God. You damn. That's impressive. When people think horror in the eighties, the first thing they probably think of is slashers and or nonstop franchises. Beyond that, we got some really great horror films. And uh, I think that while the junk is what people think of first, I don't think that you should ever really trash a, a, a decade that gave us, I mean, we, we mentioned Reanimator, Hellraiser, uh, uh, Near Dark, From Beyond, um, uh, uh, American Werewolf in London. I mean, The Shining. Well, look, we had we had Carpenter working. We we had Cronenberg working. We had the rise of Barker. We had, and even when Barker fumbles, like I think Nightbreed is one of those movies that is deeply, deeply. Whoop whoop. whoop. Nineteen ninety. Okay, I'm I'm so sorry. I thought. Oh, wait, hold on. 
Bobby says, let him talk about Nightbreed, you asshole. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I thought it was... I, um, but yeah, I think Barker is one of those guys who, even if I don't love everything he did as a filmmaker, I'm so happy he started working in the 80s because I think he pushed it... He pushed a lot of other filmmakers to try more outrageous stuff. One of the reasons that we saw the pushback we did is because we hit this plateau where violence became super realistic and all of a sudden standards loosened and you could show things. Not only you could technically show them, but you were allowed to show them like they were just okay to show in theaters. And so you did. You ran into this weird thing where I'm sure for like I always think of my great great grandmother or my great. Yes, my great grandmother, who when I started going to movies, would still go to movies with us. And she was she went to go see Star Wars with us. She went to go see stuff into the early 80s with us. And I know she saw one of the two Friday, one of the first two Friday the 13th movies because she really wanted to go. And she would tell us stories that she got told verbally from people who had been in the Civil War. So for her to live long enough to go to the movie theater and see something like Friday the 13th, I've got to imagine that felt like the end of civilization to her, like to, to go from silent films to throats being realistically slashed on camera and not. But then again, if you lived during the Civil War, you've probably heard about a lot worse carnage than what goes on in well, Friday. I'm sure, I'm sure she's heard about it, <laughs> but the idea that film suddenly caught up and could show these things like it really did. It must have felt like a cultural landslide for people that had never seen the explicit before. That's a very good point in that. I, and it kind of ties into my question. I don't want to just uh, brick wall that. It kind of feeds into this question of, if I'm not mistaken, probably most Mr. Ebert and Mr. Siskel were probably adamantly enthusiastic about the films of Sam Peckinpah, uh, without which we wouldn't have the per slightly permissive standards that allowed for the graphic violence. Uh, so it's like, on one hand, why is the slow motion massacre of Bonnie and Clyde art, but the slow motion beheading of, of Jason's mother garbage now i'm not you know, i'm not i'm not comparing the you know i'm not comparing the two i'm just saying what why is one acceptable and one not well and certainly that fight was was just as vocal like the bonnie and clyde fight and the wild bunch fight there were critics that pushed back against those and it was interesting to watch like you know i've said before that pauline kale gave me permission to be contrary to what was going on in terms of what was it the mainstream take on something. And it was for me, it was her love of Brian De Palma and her refusal to allow anybody to put him in a box of making him um, disreputable or not worth the conversation or sleazy, which are all words that were used about his work. And, you know, Dress to Kill, there was huge controversy about that movie. And by the time he got to Body Double, De Palma seemed to be chasing that controversy. He knew full well that there would be people riled up by the work he did. And she took him seriously and she took the violence in his movies seriously and she took the way he mixed sex and violence seriously and she was certainly not the only critic david anson gave uh halloween a terrific review when it came out and called it important and had the foresight to say what is happening stylistically in this movie will change things and will change the way other people approach and this is landmark this is something real this is not just a killers killing a teenager this there's something happening in this movie 
I hope that anytime something is seen as disreputable, there is at least one critic who gets in there and tries to see it for what it is and tries to take a step back and and have that cultural outside the moment ability. It's very hard when you're being hit by change. And and I do think that those guys were resistant to what they saw as the classic stylization of film going away. Yeah. I, I, and what you say earlier it that like it's hard being hit by change is the reason that you're only allowed to give strippers dollar bills. Drew, another comment, another comment from Michael Olson at dark light prods. I upgraded Wolfen, Dead and Buried, Creepshow, and Q to Blu-ray. I rewatch The Thing regularly. I have Sleepaway Camp in Q for a rewatch. All are ever ending. Uh, all are never ending because they're so unique. I'll, if you ask this question next year, you'll get the usual suspects. All right. So thank you, Michael. Uh, here's another one you'll love. This is from T Sukalov. Uh, Ten to, uh, T. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> this one you'll love from T Sukalov said possession is a film i would have never known about if it weren't for 80s all over i'm excited to hear that because it is a film i probably would have eventually gotten around to but would not have done anytime soon and boy it's definitely gonna end up in my rotation now every year andrew carden at awards connect says blood beach not the least bit scary, but for the irresistible pairing of John Saxon and Burt Young, it's an absolute must-see. Yeah. And I got to say, Drew, you know, Burt Young looks like a six-week-old pumpkin that was left outside in a Kansas cat farm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed, Scott, um, in doing research for this and sort of going back through things and old things, um, I've been reading a lot of old fangos and I love in the uh, there are sections both in the beginning and the end of each issue where they kind of talk about stuff that's in development and projects that are coming up. And if you really go back and you read all of them and you trace them through 81 through about 85, 86 it's a remarkable snapshot of what was actually happening in development development in Los Angeles, what was going on behind the scenes in horror, why things did or didn't happen, and what the gossip was at the time. And it's crazy accurate. It is more accurate than almost any fan-type magazine I've ever seen. And I have my theory as to why, and I hope we get to get into this over the course of this, this uh, podcast. I, my theory is this. If you read the magazine carefully... There's lots and lots of mentions of how important Avco was at the time. And if you remember, Avco released, um, you know, The Howling, and they worked with a number of genre filmmakers. And The Fog. It was an important company for genre. And the publicist for Avco, who eventually became the publicist and the, the head of genre publicity specifically for Universal, was a guy named Mick Garris. Mick Garris knew everybody. Mick Garris was connected to all those filmmakers who were exploding in the late 70s, early 80s, knew all of them, was a working publicist trying to set up set visits and publicity for all these films, was trying to educate the studios to the idea that a horror magazine could be not only helpful, but could be a great magazine if you just support it. And so he was really trying to get the studios to pay attention to them. He was trying to get the magazine to be better. And there is an accuracy to that information that only comes from absolutely being wired into every studio. I, I think they were maybe the most 
illuminating snapshot of early horror, the business of it, that exists. And it's a secret history. People don't even realize that's in those magazines. If you want to know what horror was really like behind the scenes, man, there's no better place. And you've really got to dig to find it. It's gold. So where uh, where, uh, where can you find the archives so, for Fango? Is they- uh, I don't know. Can you buy a Fangoria archive at this point? I would assume that's got to be something they're going to start working on. Now that Fangoria is coming back. I- oh, because I'll tell you, if you gave me all the issues back from from 80 to 85, I'd read them in two weeks. Uh, I can set that up for you. Our, our mutual friend Chris Bumbray says it's not horror, but definitely Nighthawks, which has a distinct horror flavor and almost plays like one that Keith Emerson score is terrifying. Ooh, it's a good answer. Yeah, it's yeah. a good answer. <laughs> uh, so I think I've covered this before in, in earlier bonus episodes, so I don't really want to get into it. But if we're going to talk about the 80s and horror, we cannot go any further without me thanking my maternal grandmother, who, as I mentioned many times, was one of the only uh, people I knew who had early HBO. And she used to not only call my mom and tell her to bring me over on certain nights when there was movies she knew I wanted to watch. But once uh, she got a VCR, she would like wait for a movie to start and hit record and go to bed. So I would have two and a half movies on a VHS tape, you know, just that kind of thing. And the better, the even better about my grandmother, God bless her, was that she loved horror and action. Very rarely did we watch anything but. Uh, I doubt she would have been cool with any watching anything maybe too sexual or too vulgar. Uh, but as far as like graphic violence, I remember her arguing with her husband, my mom's dad, about how she said, it's like funhouse stuff. It's like looking in the funny mirror. That's how my grandmother looked at that stuff, as if it was just walking through a funhouse and being scared at the people going, boo. And she never took it as something that a 12-year-old kid shouldn't watch, even if it was rated R. She didn't see anything really offensive about Friday the 13th. You know, she thought it was like fun stuff. I, see, I think that's really cool, man. And that is, it's uncommon because I think for some reason, and, I, you know, we we hear a lot of talk about how America is very puritanical and America has a weird set of standards for what's okay and what's not, but... The the rules about what you are or are not allowed to go see in a lot of cases, very strange. Like my my parents had weird rules about what what kind of nudity was OK, what kind of nudity wasn't OK and when they would flip out and when they wouldn't flip out. But the violent stuff, it it was such a no go in my house. And I made so many mistakes bringing things in and screening things and not thinking about who else was in the room. I didn't really develop that sort of um, self-preservation instinct as a film viewer until 16, 17 years old when I realized if I want to watch stuff, I just got to watch it when other people aren't around. If they're not going to be into it, I would use I would put on anything Whenever anybody was, in, no, I, I distinctly care. remember putting on my bloody Valentine for a, a group that in, included my mother and she did not appreciate the op- one of the opening scenes is a guy in a, you know, in a full uh, miners costume and, and face ma- gas mask, like fondling a woman's breast. And it's not like, you know, explicit or pornographic, but it's not the kind of movie, not the kind of moment you want to open up with your mom when you're 14. And yeah, I, I didn't have a good filter on that. And it's always that fun question of, Hey, would you let, do you think it's okay to let a 10 year old see porkies? And you'd go, gosh, no. And then you think, well, how old were you when you saw it? And you think back and you're like, 12, it's not that different, really. And, you know, it's like our perspective totally changes. I saw The Exorcist younger than I should have. I saw 
freaking blood-sucking freaks, man. Like, before I was 16, nobody should see that movie. And uh, it's like, on one hand, maybe it did warp me because I'm still addicted to horror films, but I, I certainly don't think it made me deviant or sick. <laughs> well, I remember um, renting one time. My cousins had come down, and I had these uh, two slightly older Canadian cousins, two girls who love to torture me with uh, inappropriate things that they would present. They would let me read or watch, and then they would tell me to go talk to my parents about them. A a endlessly entertaining game. And so we went to the video store that my parents co-owned, and we could just bring anything back. The people that worked there knew to let me just leave with whatever. So my parents didn't really double-check the stack on the way out the door. They just assumed that we had made a decent choice. And we got home and my cousins decided they wanted to watch the film that they had rented and they wanted me to watch it. And they really wanted my parents to watch it with us. And I don't think my parents made it more than seven minutes into I Spit on Your Grave. Oh, see, that's the thing. My mom and dad knew that they I mean, I obviously saw that too and kept that on the down low but my, to, if you had said to my parents uh i'm the manager of the local vhs store and you're not allowed to you know why would you they'd say scott wants to rent alien and the thing and pumpkin head and like that's what he wants like that he's not renting smut he's not renting like you know i, I think that that that's a normal thing for kids to want to watch either really goofy or really creepy stuff i think that's normal for young adults to like test that boundary of how much can i take oh i heard this one's super gory and we're all nervous and laughing about oh i, I can't wait to watch it but yet we're all thinking oh is this the one that's going to make me you know buckle my knees oh no uh, you know, and it's kind of a rite of passage. Well, that was a huge part of it, wasn't it? Like finding things. I, I remember the Halloween. I wish I knew what network it was because I would love to thank them for it. But one Halloween, I must have been 12 or 13. And they showed Friday the 13th, Scanners and The Shining all in one one of their Friday night Halloween marathons. And I remember that triple feature. Like, you wouldn't think, does brainwashing exist? Yeah, but it works like that. That's how brainwashing works, accidentally. But I just remember, like, like to me, the, the challenge was I had been told by my friend's older brothers, you won't make it through Friday the 13th. You just won't. And so for us, the dare was, can we do it? And I still remember the pop-up at the end sending his little brother out of the room, sending me over a couch sending Don screaming in circles around the room. Like it was, but that was the joy of it. Wasn't it was to, to try and test yourself every time. Like, Ooh, I hear this one's really crazy. You got to see this one. For me, it was a little different. I had like an early a mild trauma regarding Friday the 13th part two, where I was staying at my aunt Marie's house and who is a wonderful woman. And, um, but she is blind and she always has a guide, a guide dog. She lived in a small trailer in a small Pennsylvania town outside of Philly. And I stayed in a very small place. I must've been 12 or 13. I had never stayed in a trailer before. The dog was big and scaring me. I barely knew her husband who they, she had married a year before. So I was just sleeping overnight in a very alien, uh, safe, but very, you know, I wanted to go home. I was at a place I wasn't comfortable. Sure. And we watched Friday the 13th part two that night. And I still remember to this day, act three of that movie. I, I almost had a panic attack. Like, I didn't even know what a panic attack was at that point in my life, but I felt like close to that. This is not fun. This is not fun anymore. I am not having fun. 
this uh, this is not like watching this on a Saturday afternoon with my sister and my friends at home. This is now I'm in a strange place with some people I barely know. I'm uh, you know in a city I don't know, and and then. I, obviously, I got over that. Nothing happened to me. And then like two, three, four weeks later, I found myself chasing that scary moment. I wanted to, I wanted to feel that again. Isn't that for the craziest? And there's people that either tune out permanently once they've had one of those moments or you start to chase it. You start to really want that. And dude, there were, there were years. There were probably three years in the early 80s where when I would walk home from my friend Bill's house on the other end of the neighborhood... I would inevitably, because there was a giant hill between our houses, and you would have to go all the way to the bottom of the hill, and then all the way back up the next hill, no matter which way you went. About halfway up that hill, I would start to envision Jason or Michael behind me. Oh, yeah. And I would say probably every time I did it, and it was after sundown, I would have to run that last half of the hill because I would freak myself out. And yet... Man, did I chase that? Man, did I love that? And just be, and being told no became a big thing. I was a theater manager. I was an actual manager because I ended up the the theater opened and because the area was in, they went through a high turnover rate. I was there from the day it opened. And so by like I was almost 18 but not quite, I got promoted to an assistant manager. And so we booked Texas Chainsaw 2, which was unrated and according to Florida law, if you show an unrated movie, you have to treat it as an X-rated movie, which means no one under the age of 18 is admitted to the theater at all with parent, without parent. and doesn't fucking matter. You're not coming in, including employees of the theater. So during the run of Texas Chainsaw 2, I technically wasn't allowed to see the film in that theater. And we had an off-duty cop working the door during every screening, except the employee screening the night before it opened, which is where I saw it. And I remember, like, during the run of the film, not being allowed in that theater. And, man, it would drive me nuts. Because I could just go to the projection booth if I really wanted to watch it. It wasn't that I couldn't lay eyes on the goddamn thing. But, man, did it make it the most appealing movie that was out that summer? Or the most interesting? Or the most, for me, the most... I was so curious about why that movie had to be set aside. Like, And you look at it now... What the fuck in that movie was so insane? It's that any any psychology student could tell us that it's that whole forbidden fruit aspect. It's that of whole course. I shouldn't be watching it, which is, you know, like, um, oh, of course, I loved going to see uh, reissues of uh, Herbie the Love Bug with my parents and that stuff I was supposed to like. But I also wanted to see Halloween four with my friends on a sleepover because I wasn't supposed to. And it's like th you think back now and I'm not a parent, and but you are. And I think. If that's the worst thing your kid tries to get away with is like a, a, a little thrill from a Friday the 13th marathon because you don't like them to watch violent movies. If that's the worst thing they get into, you're a very fortunate parent. Uh, also, Drew, what do ghosts order at Olive Garden? What do they order at Olive Garden? Spooketti. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, but yeah, my mom was not a horror fan, and my dad, I think I watched maybe three movies in my life ever with. Uh, that. So my sister could take them or leave them. My sister's general rule was she would watch anything, but if it was garbage, she would look at me with a, just like a cocked eyebrow or a sneer and get up and leave and go either play with her friends or go, go you know, write. My sister is a great artist, draw something. And I would be sitting watching... Uh, 
a hospital massacre by myself because I just wanted to finish it. It wasn't, I don't know if I would say it was a golden age of horror, but for our generation, it was a, you know, a golden age of horror discovery because not only could we, you know, get Friday the 13th a year after it came out in the movies, but now I could see every single Dracula movie. I had I, already seen, I knew I'd seen Dracula and probably uh, Dracula's daughter. And I definitely saw Bride of Frankenstein, but had I seen the three or four other sequels? No. And now I can. And, and it just kind of opened really broad horizons for any movie geek. And I, I told this story before I, to this day, it's the greatest story ever because when my dad brought home his first Betamax ever, I distinctly remember being angry because it wasn't an Atari. I was angry that he bought a Betamax. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which he replaced with li within six months with VHS. And and then I just used to just, we used to, like on a, a normal Wednesday night, we'd be home watching normal television, and my mom would want to record something. And I just remember looking at the VCR as if it was the printed word or sliced bread. Like, what an amazing invention. It can record television shows, and I, anybody can hand me a movie I've never seen, and I can watch it. It was it was a, a great moment for you to be a huge movie nerd now. And I think not to be cynical about young people, but I think in a way, if you happen to have that great like chemistry of family influence and friend influence and personal interest, and you are currently a 12 or 14 or 18 year old movie nerd, it's kind of the same way, because just like VHS opened up every single horizon for me as a horror fan, I can only imagine that VOD and streaming does the same for a serious horror aficionado who you know wants to go through all the eras go through all the masters go it's, through all the, the franchises the problem is the libraries man they've got to get better and you know it's weird right now for me watching what happens when we talk about stuff because it almost looks like there's a weird ripple effect and i i it's so strange the way we'll talk about a wave of stuff and then over the next like four months there's a wave of dvd releases and blu-ray releases of those titles and I, you know, we didn't time this to anything. We certainly didn't like get a memo about, okay, we're going to be releasing all these things. No, on no, this I, you know what? I, I don't think, yeah, I don't, don't want anyone to think that Drew or I are taking credit for this. I think we are, we, our show is part of the same wave. Yeah, it's just funny right now seeing how there is, there is a lot of stuff that is becoming available again. And yet, even with Kino Lorber and Vinegar Syndrome and, you know, some of these companies that are re really digging deep. Even so, I, there's a lot of stuff that still remains obscure and and weirdly obscure. Things you would not expect were obscure. Fright Night Part 2, for some reason, is out of circulation, whereas the first one you can find anywhere. And there's a lot of movies that I do think, unfortunately, have fallen into that same weird rights window as a lot of British films, as a lot of smaller films, smaller American films, where... They got sold and resold and resold as part of packages, and now nobody's really sure where they are or what, what to do with them or how to get them back out. Or uh, I, Here's a couple more tweets from our old friend, Brian. I think it's Scoodle because it's S-K-U-T-L-E, but I'm going to call him Brian Scuttle because that sounds cooler. So Brian Scuttle says, I watched 1982's Venom with the dainty ape and Klaus Kinski, and it was every bit as crazy and dull and fun <laughs> as advertised by Drew and Scott. That Kinski death scene is about as epic a death as has ever been witnessed. And the, the six-hour opening scene of Trick or Treat is up next. Nice. Now, okay, so here's the thing with movies called Trick or Treat. There's a lot of them. Well, there, no, he, he, that, that's Trick or Treats. 
I know there's variations. There are trick and treats, trick or treats. There's trick or treat. There's Mike Doherty's 80s homage, trick or treat. With the apostrophe. And, you know, it's a perfectly logical title, of course, after Halloween's been used. That's maybe the most. Drew, I just had a revelation. Drew, we have to stop this podcast right now. We're going to write a screenplay called Smell My Feet. (laughs) You know, you know, Mike Doherty. Let's sell that title to him. Trick or treat Two. smell my feet. Perfect. Man, I am in for that one. Unfortunately, so are all the weirdos in the world. Um, (laughs) Quentin Tarantino presents Trick or Treat 2. Smell my feet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But one of the things that's really weird in that was really weird in the 80s and it continues to be strange to me now is how you would think October would typically be wall to wall horror films. It's rarely the case that the movies that we love, the horror classics that we love, the movies that have become the most iconic horror titles. It's pretty rare that they were October releases. October is almost never a good month for new releases. For well, horror. yeah, it's almost like you can't. It's like, yeah, on one hand, if I had a, a, a good horror movie, I am a film producer. OK, uh, if I had a good horror film and the ability to release it in October, I'd say, yeah, that makes sense. But on the other hand, there's two reasons not to. One, you might be dealing with a lot of shitty competition, movies that are just being thrown out in that season because of the same reason. And two, you can't force it. You can't force a cult item. You can't force a favorite. People just have to find it. So you wedging it into that October 13 spot does not mean that people are going to keep coming back to your horror film every October. Uh, but, you know, having said that, if you make a movie like Trick or Treat, which, by the way, is not from the 80s, but it is wonderful, the 2009, I think, right? And if you've not seen Trick or Treat, uh, check that out. It, it definitely harkens back to some of the 80s uh, touchstones and moments that we love. And Mike Doherty would be a great guest to have on the show. I, I would love to get him. Uh, Jason Colvin. Jay, Jason Colvin says, I watched the original Friday the 13th for the first time because of 80s all over. Not sure how I made it through the 80s without seeing any of these. It wasn't what I expected. That jump scare at the end got me. I like that. I like that. Interesting. All right. All right. So, Drew, here's my question to you. Flashback to, let's say, 87 or 88, late 80s. And you are tasked by your friends, boys and girls. We're going to have an overnight. And Drew gets to pick the, the three movies that we watch on our horror movie marathon. Ooh, and it's from, the, from this decade. Okay, am I trying to really scare people, or am I trying, you're trying to... to scare, you're trying to impress your friends with your film knowledge and also maybe make out with one of the girls. Ooh, okay. Um, now, it's funny because the, the stuff that has become now sort of canon was not always thought of that way. So I know that until the mid, early to mid-90s, I could still throw Evil Dead 2 on a table and nine out of the 10 people in the room would not know what it was. Yeah. And that's like, you know, movies should not be used as, you know, uh, currency in that regard. You know what I mean? Like your passion for your films is what people respect, not your knowledge. So uh, like, but anytime you can break out Evil Dead 2 and slam it on the table like a full house, you win. Like, that's it. Like, like, there is classics come and go. And, you know, sometimes the the cycle goes that a a particular horror film like The Shining uh, for many years was considered like the cream of the crop. You couldn't get any better. Unimpeachable. And then in more recent years, you've seen much more criticism of the film, which I disagree with, but welcome wholeheartedly. Uh, But 
Evil Dead 2 is unimpeachable. It is just blam. There it is. What else? What else would you play? Dead and Buried? Would you have known Dead and Buried at that point? Uh, I liked Dead and Buried. I don't know if that would have been one of the first ones that I would have thrown on the table. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, what were some of the ones that I really carried around with me? Well, I, you know, I considered it a mark of honor where I couldn't make it through a film the first time because I got too weirded out or because it was too much or because it felt like, oh, my God, is this really happening? Yeah, like bad taste. That's I had to watch bad taste in in segments because I was just like I didn't I barely could grasp what I was watching. I mean, it was I don't even love Peter Jackson's bad taste, but I do respect it a lot because it's maniacal and ultra indie, just like Evil Dead, too. But I felt like I was watching a new form of movie and I didn't know if I even liked it at first. I've grown to like Peter Jackson's earlier films more, but the first time you saw bad taste, what did you think of it? Did that just confuse the shit out of you? Absolutely. One of those that you felt like you were watching a crime. Like, are they really getting away with this? And it was, and, and that was exciting. Like to, to see something that, like pushed it that far or that felt that extreme. And to me, reanimator the first time was the same way. And, you know, I love that when we finally met Barbara, Barbara is everything you would want her to be as a person. Like she is lovely and charming and has continued to work and loves the genre that she's worked in so much and like takes care of it. Like she loves horror and that's really lovely to see. But Drew, of course, is referring to Barbara Crampton, the star of countless horror films, friend of the show. Uh, and yeah, uh, I'm with you, man. I saw Reanimator and I felt I, you know, I'm sure when it played because it did play festivals, people must have walked out of those screenings like you and I felt walking out of like martyrs like, whoa, what did I just see? Holy crap. Like that was that was nuts. And I remember my friends and I, the scene where the corpses finally have their big moment at the end and they all burst open. I was in a, my cellar, my basement of my house with, I don't know, four or five friends and my sister. And I'm, it was like a mini film festival. The, the four of us went, whoa, that was it. Just whoa. But that was that, you know, but that reaction from five people, Reanimator blew us away. And me and my sister watched Hellraiser together. And I was just like, this is different. This is not like your typical, you know, I, I wasn't an articulate film analyst at that point. But watching Hellraiser felt like if I was reviewing Hellraiser then, I would have said this is the counterpoint to the endless franchises and carbon copy sequels. This is anathema. This is the counter. This is the answer to those. And I absolutely love Hellraiser Well, and I remember like I remember the feeling when I saw Blue Velvet in a theater and I felt like I didn't even know what genre to call that film. I also remember feeling like, is this a horror film? Like this is that's where the conversation really started to shift for me as to what I called horror, because any, you know, a lot of what was called horror was stuff like Maximum Overdrive, where it was goofy and silly and you would go and you would make fun of it. And that was fine. That was kind of the part part of the fun of. And, and, you know, everybody, every horror fan has that argument with the people where they go, oh, you know what? Yeah. Friday the 13th part seven is horror, but so is The Fly, which is one of the most heartbreaking films you'll ever see. And so is Nosferatu. And so is. Well, see, and I would argue that Blue Velvet, a movie that starts with you finding an ear in a field and Absolutely. then realizing it's a nightmare about suburbia. Is- Absolutely, Drew. It's a psychological horror. It's a thriller. It's a mystery. It's a dark comedy. It's whatever you see in it. But it's also definitely a horror film.
And I love the fact that horror is a broad enough genre and a broad enough umbrella of things where I can have that experience in a theater and be profoundly unsettled and walk out not really knowing if I trust anybody else on the planet anymore because of that. Or you can go see something like, and I love this experience, Deadly Friend, where there is a gag in Deadly Friend that even if the rest of the movie is arguably one of Wes's weakest films, even the experience of sitting in a movie theater that was totally full and having that moment happen with all those people. All right. All right. That I will give you. I am not a deadly friend fan, but that moment was, Oh my God. When it happened in the theater, the the audience that I saw deadly friend with was probably three quarters full, probably the, the first or second day it opened. And there's a moment in that movie where it was like 300 people were bored just sitting on a sidewalk and a car accident just happened in front of them. Yeah. And then you jump. It's the equivalent of Sam Jackson getting eaten by the shark in Deep Blue Sea, where it is so insane. And it is such a crazy moment that you almost forgive whatever else you sat through to get to that moment. I love that. That's what horror is for me. Sometimes that it, it can be that, that it's sometimes it pushes your boundaries. Sometimes it's just a roller coaster and that's fine. Sometimes it's deep and, and metaphorical and has a lot of subtext and meaning to it. Sometimes it's just boo scared. you. I mean, there's so many different, you know, uh, flavors that you can get from horror and, you know, hopefully writers like you and I and, and countless others can help you break down the difference between uh, Cujo and man's best friend. Cause there's a big difference there, Drew. There really is. Let's go over to, let's go over to some Twitters real quick. Eric J. Harris says, I finally decided to give Cujo a watch despite having little interest. You're, you guys were right. It's almost unbearably tense at times. I love it. And then uh, Old Man and Cal, Jay Greco, says, Student Bodies, if it could be considered a horror movie, if only because my now hometown marching band makes an appearance. Whoa. <laughs> we should have him on the show. Was it campy? Yes. Was it not that funny? Yes. Was it worth it? Probably, but I still laugh at the heavy breathing. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to kill the kid with the gum. It's a bad movie that has some legitimately good gags. It really does. Uh, one more. Uh, our friend Mike Thompson, 78. Pieces. It's bad. It's so bad. It's gory as hell, but it's so friggin' awful. It's so bad. It makes you numb. I loved it. Three good things about it. The Kung Fu guy who shows up, does Kung Fu, then leaves. Linda Day George has an acting meltdown, and the ending is batshit crazy. Okay, if we're going to talk real quick about horror moments in the 80s, here's a horror moment. Oh, a moment involving pieces? Uh, well, no, not pieces. I, but pieces, one of the reasons that people love pieces is because there's moments like that insane Kung Fu teacher moment where, you know, out of left field, suddenly that movie roars to life for about three minutes and is a different film. Um, there are moments in horror films sometimes that are almost bigger than the movie itself. What are you talking about? Swimming pool kid and alligator. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, dude. I remember sitting in a theater when the hitcher played oh, and God. the truck scene came up. Yeah. And what's amazing about that moment is it's such a fundamental violation of the agreement you have with movies Yep, that when it happened, you can feel an audience turn like, whoa, whoa, you can't no. And I saw people get so mad they left. But see, here's my here's my I have two perspectives on that. As a kid, I just liked that it was unexpected and kind of nihilistic and I was into horror. So I like that. But now as an adult, I think 
The Hitcher is in many ways a film noir uh, structure. And in a film noir, a lot of times the a, a key character will die early to kind of propel the narrative forward. It's not that uh, unheard of. But I feel like so often, especially in that decade, you were either a victim or a survivor. And it becomes fairly apparent early on in the way films are structured and written. So there's not a lot of surprises in slasher films and those things. To, to, to tail back to what you said, and I think you might agree, it's the way she's killed in the film. Uh, if, if it had just been like kind of a mild, oh, he stabbed her and she died and we're shocked because we liked her and that's not right. And we didn't see that coming. I don't think it would have been all that the movie might have survived. But it's the it's the way she is dispatched. It's not pleasant. One of the other things that I've noticed during the 80s, and, and it continues to be true now, you see it with a lot of filmmakers, but it felt like a lot of our favorite horror filmmakers at the beginning of the decade spent the decade then starting to move away from the genre or starting to feel like the genre was restricting in some way. You know, Cronenberg just recently was here for Beyond Fest and he gave a, a handful of interviews, I, I think four or five total. And he basically said that he won't go back to horror, that he considers it a genre that he's done with. And he said everything in. And it's a little sad to me to hear that because I do think that it is a limitless genre. I think you can say anything in horror. I think you can do anything in horror. I think the fact that we've talked about so many different styles of film so far in this episode is, is an indicator of the fact that it's, it's really limiting to think of it as one thing. I agree with you to a degree. Uh, I, I, you and I both don't like it when somebody uh, hits it big or gets their start on horror and then turns their nose up at horror. That is shitty. And I don't think that's obviously not. I don't what think that's what he's doing. Yeah. No, nah. but I think, I think that here's the thing. Like if you were, if you've been in the war, like you, you fought in the war for four or five years and then like 20, 30, 40 years later, you might just be fed up with war movies. You don't want to see war stories. And I, I think that people like Carpenter and Cronenberg, when they think about doing a horror film, they're just like, they, that is like, I've done that. And I, I don't, I've really kind of reached my maximum on that particular well, genre. Part, every conversation we ever had with Carpenter while we were working with him was about, you know, what it is that motivates him to get off the couch these days. And uh, I think, what would do it is if you could write something that spoke to what actually scares him at his age, that's a, that's a hard thing to do because really the things that scare you once you reach a certain age, it's stuff happening to the people you love. It's lack of control over how the end of your life goes. It's things that are not terribly cinematic or interesting. And he's not scared by that other stuff. And his heart's just not in it because I don't think he's, I don't think he can do empty scare anymore. Technically, he could do it all day if he wanted. I mean, I did take one psych psychology course in college. So I think I'm, it's safe to say that like the closer you get to your own demise or the older, older that you get, you look at mortality a different way, which is not to say you turn your nose up at horror. But when you're 25, the idea of writing nine kids get slashed up. That's, oh, I'm 25. That You know, it's all tongue-in-cheek. It's not meant... But maybe when you're 70, the idea of writing 25 teens who get slashed up feels a little, like, more tragic than fun. I, you know what I mean? Like, I think your perspectives just change. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to me that so many of these guys started the, started the decade so firmly and clearly the masters of what that genre had to offer. And then by the end of the decade, they were really struggling to kind of figure out who they were and where they fit. And it was hard. It was hard to watch it happen for some of these guys. Well, it's because, the, you know, it's it's basically 
you can't stay at that Halloween level forever. That's just never going to happen. It's just does. It does not happen in the machine. It's like, if you're lucky, you get to be somebody like David Gordon green, who gets to do a studio film and then do his indie films his way. And lots of filmmakers get to do that. I think that model would have been better back then. Yeah. But Carpenter turned into a guy whose every movie had to be a hit. And or he was considered a failure. And, you know, uh, several of his films, good and bad films, didn't make money. And then that was it. That was just like it's that's the only measure of his quality. The only measure of his his worth is did it make any money? And, you know, uh, if if he had been able to stay on a level of Halloween and just keep making movies of that somewhat more, you know, more expensive than that. But uh, on, a, on an indie level, I think he would have enjoyed his career a lot more. He just got so much pressure thrown on him that he, you know, comes with success. It's, you know, double-edged sword. Yeah, well, and we saw it happen with Romero because they wanted Laurel to be kind of a mini studio, and that's a lot of weight to throw on a filmmaker. Even if you have a lot of ideas, even if you know there's a slate of stuff you want to do, it really is. It's a tough, tough load to carry. And I think, you know, Romero buckled under it. And it's a shame, man, because I, I wish that his dead movies had been sort of like the horror world's Linklater films, the, the before movie, where every so often we just check in with a dead movie to see how far that world has gone. It would have been nice if they had been a, a bit more embraced on the just indie or festival uh, level. Yeah. And we're we're coming up on Day of the Dead. Uh, we're doing that next year. And Day of the Dead is a film that I have such profound mixed feelings about. And like many 80s horror films that I don't love, I still went back to it over and over because of the things that I wanted from it. And that was an interesting thing that happened to me as a genre fan was. Oh, see, I was just on Day of the Dead for years. I just was like, no, don't like it. I look, you know, we'll defend night and dawn until the cows come home. But boy, I just Day of the Dead, a lot of yelling and boring, yelling, screaming soldiers and blah, blah, blah. I like it a lot more than that now, and I'm really curious to see what I think because I've not seen it in 10 years. But let's head, let's jump back to Twitter real quick. Uh, Eddie River, one word, life force. Oh, yeah. Love that. Good call. Uh, Our friend Gundark Hunter says, I'm always up for a rewatch of Halloween 3, but returning to it with increased knowledge of Sam Hain and Druidic custom makes me appreciate it that much more. It's a solid chiller. And. Captain Bly, 76. Halloween gets you scared to go trick-or-treating. Halloween 2 makes you scared of hospitals. Halloween 3 makes you afraid to wear the mask and become a borderline good person? No way. A solid triple feature of the (laughs) Halloween name without resurrection or a zombie many years later. Okay, Uh, so yeah. If you you liked any of these contributions, please go to the 80s all over Twitter and see where the tweet says that we are recording a Halloween episode follow everyone in that thread if you follow everyone in that thread drew will give you a dvd of hunk uh i cannot actually guarantee that that offer is real but i can guarantee that it's real but you'll never get it it Uh, sure is fun drew let's wrap up with a an interesting topic that like things that you want to talk about things that go in cycles the horror remake. Now, in, in, in the last 10, 15 years, we've gotten this general accepted knowledge that horror remakes suck. And I can see why people who are younger than us would think that because we had a really awful rash about 10 years ago of just both 
Japanese horror remakes and classic and minor classic horror remakes. And a good portion of them were either subpar or downright atrocious. I'm looking at you, the fog. Um, and, uh, so, you know, you can only throw so much crap in the, in the water before people say it's all crap, just like what happened to the spoof movie, which, you know, those two idiots destroyed the spoof movie after Mel Brooks and the Zucker Abrams Zucker team made the spoof pure art. Uh, it's now te- currently ruined. It will be fixed eventually because good filmmakers always fix the genre. Horror remakes weren't really considered garbage in the 80s. They were considered relatively uncommon. Drew, let us discuss the three key horror remakes of the 1980s and how we approach them. I don't remember the being pissy and angry because I love 1958's The Fly. I saw it probably two or three times before I even hit 15. I really like that movie. And I don't remember when Cronenberg, do you remember going to see the the, the Cronenberg fly and being like chip on your shoulder, angry? How dare you? No, not even close. In fact, um, like you, I like the original. And I always thought that the original was a clever way to approach the short story. If you've ever read the short story, it's, I mean, the beats are basically there, but they, they certainly shy away from the the graphic nature of the transformation and what it does to him. And so, like with uh, Who Goes There, I thought strong source material, interesting uh, filmmaker, sure, I guess. And then you see the, th- the fly and you realize, oh, he had zero interest in the original film. This is just his thing and he's or just his take on this material. And he's doing something that is so utterly removed from the original that to call it a remake sort of does it a disservice. It's just its own movie. And as a Cronenberg film, as an eighties film, as a horror film, really by whatever metric you want to judge the fly, it's top shelf, man. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't want to over review it because it is one of my favorite films of the decade. I, it is eminently, despite being very, downbeat and sad it's also eminently unrewatchable um and scary gory funny sad sweet uh, in smart uh, it's a great film and that's not taking anything away all right the other one you you alluded to is the thing which is also again it's not technically to because you want to beat a technical pedant about it which we are sometimes a remake is another version of an original screenplay the fly And The Thing are both second adaptations of short stories of, you know, so it's easy. It's shorthand to say remakes, you know. I'd say in both cases, they're aware of the earlier film, certainly. And it's not like they're running from any comparison. But yeah, man, when when the filmmaker goes back and starts from zero the way these guys did, it's it's a different thing. It's a different animal. I think it's just as simple as it's easier to say. Oh, that's a remake of the 1951 thing as, oh, that's a second adaptation of the same short story source material. But people kind of know. They get it. Uh, And, uh, you know, 1951's The Thing, parentheses, from another world, is a classic in many ways. But to modern eyes, it's also kind of stagey and a little dull. I hate to say it, but it truly is. Now, a 25-year-old movie geek might look at me and go, "Uh, Carpenter's Thing is also kind of stagey and dull. I would disagree, but... That's still a valid perspective, you know, Um, and uh, I think that the 1982, the thing, again, we've already reviewed it. I think if you were making a list of the top five, just most powerful, impactful, entertaining, fascinating horror films of the entire decade, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing is a just an 
epic feat. It's wonderful. It's Toshi's favorite movie. It's and it's fascinating to me to watch him having decided that and him arguing why and watching him rewatch it over and over. It's a fascinating test for parents because aside from a bit of bad language and graphic monster violence, there's nothing in that movie. You wouldn't, there's no, it's nothing too raunchy. There's nothing too, you know, it's basically a fun monster movie. They, and, and small kids really wouldn't get the whole theme of, you know, paranoia. They would just see a monster movie. Well, it took it took a while to get there, but I waited until I thought it would work on him. And it's funny, he's more scared of the Phil Kaufman invasion of the body snatchers than he was to watch The Thing, which he hasn't seen yet. And when I asked him why, it's because when when he was little and we used to read those orange monster books, there was nothing in them about The Thing. So when we finally got to that movie, he kind of went into it cold. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, there was something in there, and I read it to him, and he was probably four or five, and the idea of something that looked like you that wasn't you, that no one knew wasn't you, scared him so badly at that age that he won't watch the movie now. It's just on the list of, nah, not interested, uh, well, never. At, the, at my various video store jobs throughout the years, I used to call it the scariest horror movie on the sci-fi shelf. I, I truly, it is science fiction in every it's a way. It's terrifying but, movie, yeah. But, I, if you were to you if you wanted to do a, a debate and you said Weinberg, your job is Kaufman's Body Snatchers is horror. You're pro. I'd be like, done. I can do that. <laughs> um, but uh, and and like the last remake is and and this one's kind of the black sheep. And I won't have it much more. And this is a true remake because it is the original screenplay that it's remaking is the Blob from 1958. Now. I bet you that all the dismissive and ne- not all, but most of the dismissive and negative reviews that came out with, cause this film was not well received were probably said of the original of by, by critics in 1958 as well, that it's mindless and silly and, and, you know, uh, bad special effects, which it doesn't, both films have very cool special effects, but uh, I bet you every criticism of the wait, you get what I'm saying. I'm not going to repeat myself for you. Well, and, and The Blob is one that I learned to love. I wasn't in love with it in 89. I, I liked it, or 88. I liked it. I didn't love it. I think over time, going back to it, I really admire what it's doing. And the 80s was very big for 50s nostalgia and throwbacks to the 50s and sort of taking 50s style and making it modern. and Kind of like the 1980s are popular now. Yep. And so that is one of the movies where I feel like they get it right in that it's sort of a 50s-styled film, but it's very 80s in execution, and it's got a little bit of both. And there's a there's another 50s sci-fi remake that or sci-fi horror remake that I kind of like the same way I like The Blob. And again, I've become more fond of it over time, and that's Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, where I think over time, what I like about it so much is so clearly... Toby dreamed what he saw in theaters when he was a kid and just wanted to get his memory on film. And that's what it feels like the blob is to me. I saw the blob when I was young in the fifties and it was terrifying. And here's how it felt. It's not what it really was, but here's how it felt. And I think that's what it does. Well, Uh, I, I had nightmares about the bit in the original blob where it grabs the old man's hand. 
you know, just that one moment. A lot of the movie is silly and just fun, uh, not very scary, but just kind of nifty. Uh, but that moment is legitimately scary. And I guarantee you there are some horror fans younger than us who could pick a moment from the Blob remake, maybe the maybe the uh, the, the sink or the phone booth, where they're like, yep, that scene gave me a nightmare too, just like you, the one you did. So I, I think you're right. It does evoke the fun and the uh, creepiness of the original. And man, if I had a dream job, it would be somebody hires me to do a Blob remake. Oh, God, would I have fun. I would love to remake that again. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, I think Bobby wants to wrap it up because he has to go and get candy to feed all the little children. But Drew, I never did let you finish your question, uh, did I, about what you would program for your festival. Um, well, those, I think, I, I think those are some good ones. And I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, I would, I would throw a few left turns in there. Henry portrait of a serial killer would probably in there, um, which I consider one of the most upsetting films of the decade. Legit. See, but that, all right, let, let, then, then, you know what, let's close out with this. Cause I would call that a brilliant horror film, but I don't know if I would call that a Halloween season film because it is so nihilistic and clinically cold. I think, and now you may disagree, but to me, a Halloween movie feels more like the fun horror. No? See, and that's, and that's fair. I think fun horror, and that's, that's why I'm asking, like, like how much of a mark do you want to leave? Like, I, I, late at night, I always think with, with horror, when you're going all night, I always like to start with the fun horror. And my feeling is if you're still up at 2.30 to 3 o'clock in the morning and we start the next film, I might fuck with you up a little bit. It might be time to play a little rough now. So Fair enough. Fair enough. To me, the middle of the night is when you really start to get crazy then with those. Well, happy Halloween from the 80s All Over crew, me, Drew, and Bobby. We, If you're listening to this, it's because you support the show financially, and we cannot thank you enough. We love all our listeners, but uh, you know, anytime you... But we love you more. Uh, uh, one, maybe. <laughs> I don't even want to quantify how much more. But yeah, uh, from your two biggest horror fans, uh, happy Halloween and happy October. We'll see you next week with a normal episode. <laughs>